0: But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we gather this morning to you. Uh, and We bow our knees once again to sit at your feet that we might Know your word that you might speak it into our lives, that you might uh, awaken us from our distractions, that you might call us to faithfulness, that you might work within us that change which you desire to bring about in our hearts and our lives. Father, come this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read the story about a rabbi who had been to the market during the day and was coming back to his. House, his cottage that evening, and was absent mindedly walking around and thinking about things, and inadvertently took the uh, wrong trail, the wrong pathway. And as he was wandering in the dusk on his way home, out of the darkness called out to him and said, Who are you? And why are you here? The rabbi was surprised out of his reverie, out of his uh, distractedness, and realized that he had taken the path the wrong path, down toward the Roman garrison. And it was a sentry standing guard at the garrison who was speaking to him. And so the rabbi, seizing the opportunity, and um, reached out to the guard and said to him, you know, son, how, how much do they pay you to stand here every day, all day, and ask people those questions? The sentry, realizing the guy's not a threat, Um, answers him, matter of factly, and says, they pay me five drachmas a day. And the rabbi said, well, then I got a deal for you. If you will come home with me, I will pay you double if you'll stand out in front of my cottage and every morning ask me those questions. Who are you? And why are you here? Who are you? And why are you here? We all need a century someone who we could pay to stand in the front of our house, at the head of our driveway, in our front yard, and every morning as we awaken into our day to ask us that question. Who are you? Why are you here? See, as followers of Jesus, you and I must be crystal clear about the answer to that question. Because he says we're in the world, but we're not of the world, but the problem is that we we do become distracted like the rabbi on his way home and we can end up taking the wrong path. And that's what we do as often as not. And we need to be crystal clear about who we are and why we are here. We inadvertently uh, invest ourselves in the wrong things. We inadvertently, in a sense, waste our lives. Because we have forgotten who we are and why we are here. As Jesus is praying for his disciples in the upper room, and this is his his final time praying over them, his disciples, as he's about to leave them. I'm going out of the world. They're staying in the world. You know, Father, these are the things I want for them. And Jesus, as he prays, he prays this over them. He prays who they are and why they're here. And we need to hear him pray it over us this morning, to to speak it to us this morning. He prays, as he says in verse 9, I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, not praying for the world at large. I'm specifically praying for those, as he says, whom the Father has given to me. And then what does he pray for? That's who he prays for, who we are. And what he prays for is that God would keep us, that God would sanctify us, and that God would send us. He would keep us and sanctify us and he would send us, right? Jesus reminds us who we are. He says it here in this verse, in verse 9, as he speaks to the Father. And, he, and of course, he's praying in earshot of his disciples. It's as if you come down this morning and stand with me and I can put my hand on your shoulder and pray for you, right? And I'm going to pray out loud. And you're going to hear what I pray for you, or you will hear what, the, what, what any of the elders would pray for you. And this is Jesus as he sits with these guys in this little room, and he's been sharing with them, and he's praying for them out loud that they would hear him and what he prays for them. And that they would, in a sense, enter into that prayer and own that prayer and be the answer to that prayer as the Father Answers the prayer in their lives. And so Jesus is reminding them who they are. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world at large right here, but I'm praying for those whom you have given me. Those whom you have given me out of the world. For they are yours. Now that's an interesting concept, that there are those whom the Father has given to the Son. And that this is a group that Jesus is praying for here. And we wrestle with that concept that that the Father has given a group to the Son and from all eternity. I believe that it is. We'll we'll look at that very briefly. And some would say, well, you know, that, that, that here Jesus is praying just for the apostles. That the apostles have been called for a very special ministry. There's 11 of them, 12 of them. There'll be 11 of them. And Jesus is praying for these 12. And the Father has given him 12 apostles. And I understand that, in some sense, that's true. He is, he is praying specifically for this group in this moment, as I think he is laying his hand on them or so forth. But what he is praying for them and what he says about them is something that he says about all disciples. And that, yes, it's the small group of the apostles right now, but what is true of the 12 is true of the church. Because he says it again and again in, in many, many places, in many, many ways. The theme runs through the book of John, and the concept permeates the scripture from the Old Testament to the New. God's chosen people, from Israel to the church. We see, as you put in your bulletin, just going back to John chapter 6, and again, this is just one of those passages where Jesus is talking to the crowd. He's talking to, there's Pharisees and and the teachers of the law in the crowd, and a larger crowd, and he's, he's speaking to them in general about his ministry and His call on them and why some believe and some don't believe. And, he's, and they're wrestling with Him and He speaks to them. So we're out of the upper room. We're in a crowd and He says this, John 6, 37, in your bulletin. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All whom the Father, there's this group, all whom the Father gives to the Son, he says, will come to the Son. And whoever comes, the Son will never cast them out. Or in verse 39, just a couple verses later, he says it this way, This is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose none of all that the Father has given to me, the Son, but raise him up on the last day group the Father has given to the Son, and those whom He has given to the Son will come to the Son. And those who come to the Son are never cast out. Those who are never cast out, He says, I will raise them up on the last day. There's this group that the Father has given to the Son, and He says, that last day is set. Never cast out and raised up. In 17.2, back to our passage, and this, He actually uses this phrase five times in the first ten verses. Every other verse. Repetition in the Scripture is always meaningful. And Jesus, as he prays for these guys and lays his hand and he prays for them, he uses this phrase over and over again. Verse 2, he says, you have given me authority over all flesh. This is the whole world, the entire human race. You've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. He does it again in verse 6. I have manifested your name the people whom you gave me out of the world they were yours and you gave them to me right this group given by the father to the son the bible calls it from the from, from f- throughout the scripture uh, as god's elect or the chosen it's the same word no matter and you'll see it translated in some passage with the word elect sometimes in the word chosen some people you know they they want you know, we wrestle with this idea, and it can be difficult for us, and so we tend to to, to avoid it. But the problem is, if you're going to preach a scripture, you can't avoid it. You keep bumping into it. You know, if you want to skip that idea, don't read the book of John. While you're at it, don't read the book of Romans, uh, or or the book of Ephesians, or really First Peter, <laughs> or the Old Testament, or... You know, it permeates the scripture, and, and, and he puts it out there up front. It's not like a sub-hidden theme. It's a theme that rides on, on top. You know, most people know that, that the Bible calls Israel in the Old Testament uh, God's chosen people. And most people don't flinch at that. You know, we're, we're comfortable with that. And then we move to the New Testament, and what we fail to recognize is the New Testament calls the church God's chosen people. Uh, just as frequently, just as regularly, just as openly, just as freely as it does in the Old Testament, right? And I just pulled like three out of dozens of verses, and there they are in your in your in your Bible uh, in your notes, and in your Bible, Ephesians one verse four. He says, "He the Father chose us, the church. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, speaking of us as a group. Chose us in Him that is in Christ before the foundations of the world. In other words, we were chosen." He chose us in Christ. In fact, saying this is no other than saying, Those whom the Father has given to the Son. The Father chose us in Christ, gave us to the Son before the foundations, he says, of the world. Matthew 24, 31, Jesus, and you have to follow even the language of Jesus, and throughout his ministry, you hear Jesus use the language. Matthew 24, he says he's going to send out his angels, the Father, with a loud trumpet call. And what are they going to do? They're going to gather his elect. From the four winds. Again, the word elect there is just, I don't know why they do it. It's the same Greek word. Sometimes they say put chosen. Sometimes they put elect. Same word, English synonyms, interchangeable. You can put chosen there. He will gather his chosen ones from the four winds. This is Jesus, this is what God is going to do as he separates the sheep from the goat and he does what God is going to do as the world ends. He rolls up the skies like a scroll and he will gather his chosen ones from the four winds. And Jesus says things like this, if you know, if, if, uh, you know God would shorten this time, if it were uh, you know, for the sake of the elect, and he uses that language again and again. Colossians chapter 3, it's here in your, in your Bible again. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, another Christian church, And he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, compassionate hearts and kindness. And he makes this list of Christian virtues and fruits of the spirit. So he tells them, you know, put on Christian character, put on your Christ likeness put on your growing Christian nature. And then he gives them a motivation. And he says, this is how I want you to think about it as you do it. This is how I want to think about yourself as you pursue this Christ-like character, as you put on the new self. He says, do it like this, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. He says, think of yourselves that way. God's chosen ones put on this character of Christ. It's what Jesus is praying for them right here. I'm praying for those whom you have given me out of the world. And he says it five times in ten verses as he prays over them so that it would, it would get down it deep into their psyche. Jesus keeps saying the Father gave us to him and that we belong to him and that he is entrusting us back to the Father as he, as he prays for us. Someone may say, well, that's all very well and good, but how do I know if I'm one then? That's always a question I hear as you talk about this topic at all. And I would simply say this. You can't answer that question from the outside. It's one of those questions that can only be answered from the inside. In other words, Jesus doesn't tell us to try to figure out in some way. What Jesus says, whoever, all whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. In fact, I will raise them up on that last day. So I so this is where I would say and It's what the Bible says whoever God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever should come to him and that's what Jesus says whoever comes so if you're wondering about that question I would say this come to Jesus put your faith in Christ and he says if you do that he'll never cast you out and he will raise you up on the very last day. That's the only way to answer that question is from the inside is to Whoever comes is to come to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Jesus prays for his people in such a way that he's telling them who they are. And the Old and the New Testament pick that up and speak that way throughout. This is who you are. From all eternity, the Father has given you to the Son. And you who have come to him, he will never cast you out. And he will raise you up. And he prays over you these things. And what does he pray for his people? He prays he will keep, sanctify, and send. And let's touch those quickly. It says he prays that, they would, that the Father would keep them. See it in verse 11 and verse 15. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're going to be in the world. I'm leaving, they're not. I'm coming to you. Father, Holy Father, keep them. Protect them. Right To keep here is that word that is to... You know, is to preserve, to protect, to keep safe. Father, keep them in your name. He says it again in verse 15. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I'm leaving, they're not. But that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them spiritually safe. Keep them from the evil one. Protect them, preserve them, uphold them. Right, And so this is as he gives them back to the Father. He prays specifically. And then he says this is what he's been doing the whole time. Verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Right, I've been about that business. They were yours. You gave them to me. And I've been keeping them. And as I come home, Father, to be at your right-hand side, now you keep them. I've been keeping them, he says, which you have given to me. Here he uses it again. Who am I keeping? I'm keeping those you've given to me. I have guarded them. That's a different word, guarded, uh, than the keep word. It's a synonym. It's very similar. It has the idea of that sentry that was in front of the Roman garrison, the guarding. He was, he was keeping watch over the garrison to protect it, to keep it safe. And so there's the actual guarded imagery. What he's guarding and then what he's doing is he's keeping. And he says this is what Jesus and the Father have been doing over those whom the Father has given the Son Jesus says, none of them. Right? I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. He says, Except the son of perdition. And you need to understand that truly is an exception. You know, Judas is, is, is an exception, the son of perdition, and it says, Except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He had a specific role in the in the life and death of Jesus prophesied in the Scripture, fulfilled in his betrayal. None have been lost except the son of perdition in the keeping with the Scripture. But we the exception should not put us off of the rule, because the rule, in other words, what Jesus wants us to hear when he says this is, I have kept them, I have guarded them, and none of them are lost. In other words, those whom the Father has entrusted to me are safe. I keep them. Father keeps them. Right, John chapter ten. You go back, and again, this is this is outside the upper room. Jesus is speaking to a crowd. The Pharisees are questioning him. He's actually having a bit of a, a bit of a row in some ways with the Pharisees and arguing over some stuff. I think it's in this passage he tells them that there's well, so he he's, he's arguing with them, and in the midst of it, he says this: John ten twenty eight and nine. No one will snatch them. Who is them in this passage? Again and again, he says, my sheep, right? This is the whole sheep and the good shepherd and, you know, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. They come to me, you know, and he says, no one will snatch them, my sheep, out of my hand. Why? Because my father, who has given them to me, the sheep, all the sheep, have been given to me by the father. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says, and the Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. I don't know if you remember when we were back here, just touching again on that whole notion of this double grip of grace. They were the fathers, and he gave them to the Son. And Jesus says, all that are yours are mine, and all that are mine are yours, and they're yours, and you gave them to me, and I hold them, and none will snatch them from my hand. And my Father, he's greater than all, he's the one who gave them to me in the first place, and I give them back, and they're his, and no one can snatch them from his hand. In this double grip of grace, he says, you guys, none are lost. There is in one sense that they are untouchable, that he keeps them in the faith. He doesn't keep them outside of it. He keeps them in a growing and sanctifying faith. His faithful ones. And then he says he sanctifies them. Right? Sanctifies. Verse 17 and 19 this group the father has given to the son he keeps them and he prays for their sanctification in verse 17 he says sanctify them in the truth your word is truth in 19 he says and for their sake i consecrate myself why so that they also may be sanctified in the truth let me ask you what do you think of what do you hear when you hear the word sanctified it's one of those Christian words, it's a Bible word, it's a good word, but it's one of those 50-cent words, it's a theological term. and Some of you know enough, some of you hear it, and it's, it's up over here, and some of you hear it, and you have a very specific idea. When you say sanctify, usually what we're talking about is that process whereby the Spirit works in the life of God's people to make them progressively more like Jesus. Right? It's a, it's a process of spiritual growth. God sanctifies us and gets rid of all the old junk. The old is gone and the new stuff. Put on a new man to be made like like God in righteousness and holiness. And so we usually think in terms of moral purity and righteousness. And that is all correct. All I want to do is take that and just step it out one more time and say, you know what? It's bigger than that. It's not one slice of your life. It's your whole life. You know, he doesn't sanctify or set apart or do something in one sliver or one portion of the one slice of the pie. But it's, it's the whole of our lives that is set apart, that is made holy. And that's what the word sanctify, the word literally means in the Greek, you know, to sanctify means to make holy. And to make holy literally means to set something apart. Right? To set it apart. And in the Bible, it usually means two things, to set it apart for a specific, and when you're speaking biblically, usually a holy purpose, right? And I'll give you a couple examples, one mundane and one from, from the Bible. One of the mundane would be uh, this whole thing, I get paid every couple of weeks, and so does Lynn, and we take that money, it goes into our general account, and we pay our bills. You know, we um, we buy our clothing or buy the household things that we need, and we you know, pay for our insurance, and we do the things that we need to do out of that money, but every now and then I get a check in the mail or handed to me that's a gift. you know my mother still gives me a birthday check um, and when I get that check i don't I don't put it in the general account i don't I don't deposit it, I cash it, and I fold it into four and I tuck it in the back of my wallet. I still do I have some money in there right now. And don't wait for me in the parking lot. it's not that much. But I put it in there. Why? Because that money is holy. It, it's set apart. It's not for common use. You know, it's set apart for a special use. That money sits there until I'm in the store one day and I'm like, I want that. And, it's, and, it, and so I buy that because I have the freedom. I have money that's been set apart for a, a, a specific purpose. It's not part of the common, everyday money that I have. God does that with stuff in the Bible. When you think of the temple in the Old Testament, the temple was full of stuff. You know, our sanctuary is full of stuff that we use in our worship. And the temple had very specific things. It had a table, too. It had candelabras. It had a big basin. It had, it had instruments, you know, uh, things that they used in their ladles and whatnot. All this stuff, the Bible says that stuff was holy. It doesn't mean it was morally pure. If a table can be morally pure. But what it means is this, that it was set apart, and it was set apart for a very specific purpose, use. It was set apart by cleansing it. Everything in the temple was cleansed by blood. They dipped a branch in the blood, and and they sprinkled it on everything, and they cleansed everything that was going into the temple. They, They sprinkled blood on it to cleanse it and to set it apart, and then they put it in the temple to use it in the worship of God. For a very specific use. So all of this is to come back around and to say, what, is God, what does it mean that God would sanctify us? We've been given by the Father to the Son, set apart, cleansed by his blood on the cross, sprinkled on his people from the guilt of our sin to set us free. For what? So that you could be put to holy use. 2 Timothy 2.21, it's there in your bulletin And the third point. Tim, Paul writes to Timothy, he says it this way, if anyone cleanses himself, that is, is in, involved in that work where he is cleansing us from all that is unrighteous and, and, and dishonorable, he says if this happens, he says you will be a vessel for honorable use. Now you're, now you're ready to be used. He says set apart useful to the master and ready for every good work. See, being set apart is not an end in itself. I labor this because I think sometimes we as a church see being set apart as an end in itself. But it's not. God has a very special purpose for us. He wants us to be useful vessels to accomplish his purposes. So why does the Father give a people to the Son that He keeps and He guards in the world from the enemy spiritually, from the evil one that He sets apart for Himself? What is that purpose? I believe He tells us in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I'm leaving, but they're staying. I want you to do all of this for them. And as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Why did He set us apart? Why does He keep guard over us? Why are we given to the Son? And in some senses, the question is, why are we still here? Who are you? Why are you here? The answer is, the Father has sent the Son into the world, and so you and I, the Son says, have been sent into the world. By His cross, He cleanses and sanctifies the people and sets them apart from the world, not as an end in itself, but to send them into the world, even as He was sent into the world. Matthew 28, we all know these verses. All authority in heaven and earth been given to me, Go. As I was sent into the world, I'm sending you into the world. Go and make disciples. Or Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Go, go, make disciples. As I was sent into the world and made you into disciples and in this larger group into a group of disciples and I'm building a church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Go. You are my witnesses. I can't. He doesn't witness for himself. He witnesses you now are the salt of the earth in the light of the world. 14 and 16, he says, we're not of the world. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. The Father gave them to the Son. We're not of the world, we're of the Son. We're in Christ, so to speak. Right? We're not of the world. He says it again in verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. See, I mentioned this, and again, is the same point I was just making, is this, that we get confused, I believe, in confusing our identity with our mission. We think sometimes, I think the church sometimes thinks that our mission is to not be of the world. But that's not our mission. That's your identity. You've been given by the Father to the Son. And you've been set apart, and he keeps you, and he sanctifies you, and you belong to him, you are not of the world, you are like the sun in that respect, and that's not your mission, that's your identity. but why we sometimes think, get it confused with our mission, and so we take a defensive, protective stance against the world. we build holy walls of a fortress you know to protect us from the world, keep us unsullied from the world. We carve out a private Christian enclave and seek to keep the world out. We're in defense mode. But our calling is not to be set apart. We are set apart. And he keeps us set apart by his grace and for his glory. He keeps us and he guards us and and he owns us in that respect in Christ. It's our identity, but our calling is this. is I was sent into the world, I send you into the world. You're not of it, but you're to get into it. I'm leaving the world, but I'm leaving you here. I'm leaving you here to carry on the mission. You are my witnesses from now on. I commit to you the ministry of reconciliation, that God is not counting men's sins against them anymore, and you need to preach this gospel that in Christ sins can be forgiven, that this is your, you are my witnesses now. Go and make disciples. He left the comfort and holiness of heaven, he laid aside his glory took on the form of a servant, became nothing in a servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to make disciples and to build a kingdom. And, and he says, you, my friends, are to bring this kingdom in this gospel that I have brought in my years here. You are to bring it. You are my agents, kingdom agents, gospel agents. I want to read a quote from Luther. I've read it before, so some of you may recognize it. It's one that hit me across the face at one time. And I think Luther was a Yankee because he doesn't have much tact. You know, he's, he, he's just forthright and frank. He just says whatever's on his, on his mind. And he was that way. If you read his stuff, Luther is just kind of in your face that way. And Luther just says it. So I'm going to let him say it as he said it to me one time. And he says this, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. That is in the midst of the world. I send you into the world. He who won't suffer this, who, who doesn't like this or won't do this, doesn't want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants some other kingdom. You know, he wants to be among friends. He wants to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. And he says, oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Jesus. If Christ had done what we are doing, who would have been spared? How would anybody be saved? How will they hear unless someone is sent? You know, unless someone goes, how will they go if they're not sent? Jesus makes very clear right here, I'm sending. As I was sent, I'm sending. We are a sent people, a people given by the Father to the Son, kept, sanctified, and sent into the world. And he says, as you go and make disciples, I will be with you to the very end of the age. I will be with you, but you are a going people. You are a sent people. James Stewart says, in every age, the man who has seen the risen Christ, or the man or the woman who has seen the risen Christ, is the man or a woman with a mission. His true home is a missionary community, and God wills that through him, through us, through those who have seen the risen Christ for themselves, who have come to know him and to love him and to love his kingdom, through them that others will be drawn into his fellowship. Who are you and why are you here? There are three kinds of Christians in the world. I was told this as a young believer, and it's stuck with me ever since. There are those who go, there are those who give, and there are those who are disobedient. Right? The goers, the givers, and the disobedient. What is that trying to say? I think it captures this. All of us are part of this mission. There aren't any exceptions. This is who the church is. This is who you are. And it's why you're here. And so we participate in one way or another. And have, I wish, you know, again, we have, that we would have somebody standing in our front yards that every day as I come out my front door to go to my car, he would ask you, who are you? And why are you here? We will remember as we enter into every day who we are. You know, there's a thousand applications to all of this. If you've never gone... I would encourage you to be plotting about when you could go, not if you can't, you know, if you missed it this year, am I going next year, am I going the year after, you know, what opportunities are available to me, I want to be at some point, I want to be a goer, I want to go, you know, I want to be a part of this, I want to taste and see what God is doing, and if you're not going, then we should be giving, giving to the uh, global outreach, giving, as we say, we have goers right now, we have a team set up to go to Acapulco, we have another youth team going to to, uh, Chicago, and Starting now, there's this the auction that's out. There's one of the ways that we give. And I would, if you're not going, I would encourage you and call you to be a giver. Uh, if you're not going, be a giver. Um, that that we would participate in the mission of the church one way or another, sacrificially, regularly. It's who we are. It's what we do. And to sign up for those dinners, you, then you sign up to go and spend time and to build relationships and to to strengthen the church in other ways. So I encourage you to sign up for dinner. I encourage you as the, uh, the Acapulco team begins to give opportunities that we enter into that. And all along the way, I encourage you to be plotting and scheming of how, how am I a goer here in Chattanooga and Hickson around the world. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come this morning, we confess it is so easy to get distracted and take the wrong path. It's so easy to wander afar would you remind us, who are we and why are we here? That it would capture our imaginations, that it would capture us daily, not something that once a year we celebrate, but something that, that daily we have an identity. Of those who have been sent into the world, that your kingdom may come and that people would come to know Jesus. Capture us, recapture us for your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.